What is up, everybody? So, today I had planned to release the Imjarvi, or Imjarvi, I'm not exactly sure how it's pronounced, humanoid encounter, that I talked about on the Blue Ribbon panel, because I was able to find additional information, and I thought it'd be a good episode. I don't know if it's going to be one of our longest or not, but it should make for an interesting episode, but... What I'm finding is that uh, when my other podcast, The Coda, and Our Strange Skies releases on the same week, I'm kind of like a chicken with my head cut off, just uh, you know, running around like crazy trying to get everything done. So I kind of wanted to switch weeks in which that episode would appear. So you're going to get that episode next week, but what you're getting this week, and I didn't want to leave you with nothing, is our Patreon bonus episode that I did with Amber and Andrew from Into the Portal, in which we talked about the Charlie Red Star flap, which is a really fascinating Canadian UFO flap from 1975. So I think you're going to like that, and I'll see you next week. And, and there's going to be an update for that bonus episode, the home invasion episode that I released, that bonus episode, with that uh, mysterious MUFON report. Well, we know who that MUFON reporter is now. And there are some interesting additional cases that I found to that. So if all goes well next week, there should be two regular episodes plus a Patreon bonus episode next week. So until then, give this one a whirl. What's up, Euphonauts? Welcome to the second edition and the second recording of this episode of Their Strange Skies, where we're looking at UFO events in other countries, and we're going back to Canada this month to look at the Charlie Red Star Flap. And with me, on the other end, I have two very special guests, Amber and Andrew from Into the Portal. How y'all doing over there? Hey, buddy. We're doing great. We're doing great. Awesome. Stoked to be stoked to be on. This is fun. Mm -hmm. uh, again, we're doing this again because of yeah. audacity. <laughs> just deciding, no, it wasn't going to do what I wanted it to. So yeah, it's all part of life's rich pageant, you know. Yes, yes, it's, it really is. Um, it, it, it makes for some uh, interesting moments and uh, interesting recordings. <laughs> well, we're happy to do it twice. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> Yep. Is this redemption? Yeah, exactly. For me? Redemption. We feel like we we we, we got to cover all of it now. Can't miss anything. <laughs> we're, uh, yeah, cover all the nooks, all the crannies, um, because there there was a lot of uh, activity happening uh, here. But before we get into that, so into the portal, we've both been podcasting for about roughly the same amount of time. Mm -hmm. Where did the idea for into the portal come from? Uh, and how did you, how long did it take to get started with everything and uh, just get into the nitty gritty of your podcast? Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, we, it basically all came about when Amber and I were both working in the wine industry 
and uh, super bored. So because we were bottling <laughs> and doing all kinds of like kind of menial labor stuff. And uh, we were, got to listen to Astonishing Legends and some other podcasts like that. And it really inspired us because we were always interested in, you know, cryptid creatures and different things like that. But, you know, I don't know. We never really thought about doing our own podcast until we really kind of uh, got into them. And then, um, you know, a few others as well, but just reading books and stuff. But, yeah, it really all came about after Christmas just this past year. We were kind of, you know, we were like we were bored from, you know, not being in university anymore and, you know, kind of reading and researching, but not really making anything out of it. So we were like you know what, like, let's research, let's research something, let's pick a topic, ended up being, you know, based out of Egypt, which has been a theme kind of for our show, we <laughs> always seem to go back to the desert, but mm. uh, started researching for the Lost Army of Cambyses, and it just, it hooked us in, and we bought a mic on Amazon, researched for a few weeks, and sat down to kind of wing that first recording, and we just had so much fun doing it, we were hooked, and um, that's that was kind of the birth of Into the Portal. Mm-hmm. The name itself you know, we kind of went back and forth with a few different like name ideas, I guess, but like we settled on into the portal because I mean, you want to pick up from that, Amber? Honestly, I feel like that just comes from our sort of philosophy and our our standpoint where we want to, we want to look to the other side. We want to explore, you know, like, um, the lesser known, um, the paranormal, all this type of stuff. And we almost went with just portal, yeah, and we actually yeah. we we went and, and canvassed and we interviewed well I interviewed asked a few people <laughs> what they thought into the portal portal what do you what, what do you think and I guess into the portal one yeah into the portal one so yeah. I mean yeah like looking at stuff from an alternate perspective is kind of our mantra and yeah like through to the other other side of the portal so to speak mm-hmm. yeah and you guys have had a hell of a run so far a lot of great episodes and I encourage everybody listening to this right now. Go subscribe to their podcast. It's really great. I look forward to it every Sunday night because I know Monday morning when I have to drag my butt into work, <laughs> there are two people with a great podcast. So definitely go subscribe to that if you haven't already. So we're here today to talk about Charlie Redstar, who I'm calling uh, Canada's, and not just Canada's, but the world's most charming ufo realistically i it's not often that you see a ufo personified but for whatever reason canada chose to personify this ufo yeah that's uh it's very canadian let's you know it's it's the friendly ufo so you, you got to name it and yeah it's almost like et <laughs> know, or it's something so typical. Eh? Yeah. it's just like very yeah endearing <laughs> and very endearing yeah totally it's- yeah, and during this time from 1975 to 1976, hundreds of people in southern Manitoba and Minnesota, Wisconsin, a lot of the same area, would uh, report seeing UFOs uh, over the course of a year. And the sightings generally ran the gamut from nocturnal lights, which is your basic sighting of a light at night, all the way up to a close encounter of the first kind and close encounter of the second kind cases. Right. And our UFO daddy actually did make mention of this uh, back in 1975. He, uh, He said, quote, We have had for the past six weeks a fair amount of activity in southern Manitoba in an area of about 55 miles south of Winnipeg. We've had some very interesting sightings from here. The pattern has been in the past that an area can remain UFO hot for several weeks and then things just die down. 
This thing is unusual in that it has lasted so long. It's beginning to look as if northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, and southern Manitoba form one large area. So <laughs> the idea of a UFO flap is that it's a series of UFO sightings. It's either in a certain area for a, an extended period of time, or uh, the alternative to that is it's a certain type of object that is seen maybe all across the U.S. during a certain period of time. So right. it ticks both those boxes because Charlie, he kind of has some characteristics, but they kind of change a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, to further talk about just what was happening in the area and kind of give us an idea of the intensity of the sightings of 1975, not just in this area, but all across uh, the United States and Canada. Grant Cameron, he was interviewed by Mike DeMonte for his website, Punk Rock and UFOs, and he said, quote, the story actually didn't just happen in Canada. Most of the story was told about southern Manitoba, where I lived. But at the same time, there were scores of UFO sightings that happened in the same period in Minnesota and Wisconsin. There was one town in Wisconsin that had so many sightings, the CIA sent two agents there to investigate. In 1975, while we were dealing with the polls of reports... There were UFOs reported in the nuclear weapons storage areas where nuclear weapons were stored in most of the United States Air Force bases along the Canadian border. The ones we know about were Loring on the main border with Canada, Wurtsmouth Air Force Base on the Michigan-Canadian border, Minnow near the North Dakota-Canada border, and Malmstrom near the Montana-Canadian border. Most importantly, after three decades... One of the key things that may have caused the UFO sightings in southern Manitoba may have been because of 100 new nuclear installed in Nakoma, North Dakota, to destroy incoming Soviet ICBMs. When the nukes were taken out in late 1975, the UFOs went away, and the main town involved, called Carmen, has had no major sightings since. So, Hmm. just a lot of... UFO activity going on at this time. And I think what's interesting is that in terms of 1975, and and even with this case, there is one case that pretty much like engulfs all of them, and that's Travis Walton's case. You don't hear a lot about the UFO sightings of 1975. It just does not happen, and it's kind of odd. And... With Charlie here, this was probably the most significant flap of that time. And one of the things about the just the, the number of UFO sightings is that the United States may rank number one in terms of total UFO sightings. Right. But, but Canada ranks number two. Now, huh. Canada just does not have a lot of famous UFO sightings. As opposed to the United States, which, if you go and you look at the Wikipedia list of reported UFO sightings, there are a ton of them. Yeah. Why do you think Canada is is more conservative about their UFO reports? Why do you think mm-hmm. there aren't as many famous ones? 
Hmm. That's, that's a, a good question. I, right? That's an excellent question. I think you kind of nailed it, Rob, when you said conservative. Yeah. Because that's kind of what we are. We're kind of, uh, like, I don't even know. I feel like Canada, well, even just in relation to Charlie Redstar in particular, you do see instances where um, families, oh, it escapes me right now, the name of that one family that was figured very prominently in Grant Cameron's book. But they Oh, the McCann family? Yeah, McCann, the McCanns. That's right. And they experienced a lot of negative repercussions in their community and uh, negative perceptions of them uh, basically as liars and telling tall tales and stuff. So I think a lot of people, especially in the prairie provinces, hey, like a lot of people are very conservative, very um, no nonsense. I don't think they would indulge a lot of um, fringe topics per se. Obviously, there is the minority that would. But I don't know. Maybe it just is the idea that people don't want to be publicly persecuted for what they report. Yeah, I think that I think that that's probably a part of it. The other obvious part is just the sheer population difference. Like, Mm. um, there's just there's going to be more people to see these things and then make the reports. I think I think most of the time people probably just don't report, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's more likely to happen in Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver and these these hubs. And then as you move in inward, I just yeah, I'm not surprised that there's not as many famous incidents like a Roswell of, uh, you know, I mean, there are obviously some, and I'm sure we'll touch on them in this episode, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I'm going to start staring at the skies a little bit more. Maybe I'll be the one to bring about the most famous, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see something eventually. <laughs> we got to get Canada. We got to get some, something exciting going on here. Come on. But that is interesting, Rob, that you mentioned that Canada is number two. I, who's number three. Do you know? Yeah. I am, if I had to guess, because I, I haven't looked at the numbers in a while, I would say it's Mexico. Oh, just yeah. Because okay. it may just have to do with the fact that they're more open to mm. reporting UFO sightings. Sure. Uh, it, it, realistically, Mexico is probably the most open country when it comes to uh, talking about UFOs and even the government investigating UFOs. So uh, probably... Yeah, it would probably have to be Mexico. Hmm. That's really cool, actually. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's that? fascinating. You I do hear about a lot of um, stories from like South America and stuff, right? Like, the... yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Is it... Brazil is Brazil, one of yeah. the. Uh, they get some of the strangest UFO reports I think I have ever seen. I mean, you're talking about a country where UFOs have reportedly killed people. So yeah, that's yeah. yeah. I heard that like with um like tractor beans or something, like right? crazy or... flying metal boxes that like shoot people with lasers and stuff. That was yeah a, the was um a... the Chupa sightings. Yes, uh, and that was yeah. back. I think it was in the 70s. Ooh, um, and, also and in that the was 70s. yeah, and that was investigated by Jacques Vallée. And actually, the first widely reported abduction account actually came from Brazil. Um, wow. The case of Antonio Vias Boras, who uh, was abducted by some female aliens, and yeah, a bunch of shit happened, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good times, I'm sure. I mean, you... Oh, oh, yeah. They, yeah. Were, they were... I don't know if he, he considered them good times, but um, yeah, good times were, were afoot. Um, but... Yeah, just looking at the Wikipedia page called List of Reported UFO Sightings, for 1975, there are three of them. They all come from the United States. Charlie Red Star is not even on here, which is kind of insulting, but again, like, 
it didn't really come to the forefront until last year when um, the main source that we're using for this is Grant Cameron's book, uh, Charlie Red Star, True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings. Mm-hmm. One of them we already touched on, the Wurtsmith Air Force Base near in Michigan. Mm-hmm. And at, at a certain point, they actually ordered a plane that was in the area to give pursuit to it. The other one, aside from Travis Walton, is a case called the Stonehenge Incident, which took place near North Hudson Park in New Jersey by a man named George Obarski. It was investigated by a lot of people, and through all the investigations, they were actually able to find corroborating uh, eyewitnesses of people seeing this object land and 10 beings getting out and taking soil samples. And it was seen by this man named George Obarski. He was driving home at 2.45 in the morning. He sees this object. He sees these beings collect these soil samples. He comes back a day later, and he sees all these holes in the ground. And that's a case that a lot of people don't talk about. The only time I've ever seen it reported is in uh, one of Bud Hopkins' books. I think it was Missing Time, the first of his books. But, yeah, 1975, for whatever reason, we don't talk about the UFOs from that time. Yeah, <laughs> it's just bizarre. bizarre. Weird. Bizarre. That's what we're here for, right? Is it a conspiracy? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into kind of the characteristics of Charlie, because, yeah, like I said, they personified him. To the point where they considered him, you know, really charming and really friendly. And, you know, these aren't words that people use to describe UFOs. No, definitely not. I mean, yeah, nothing intimidating about it for the most part. No. Yeah, charming, friendly, like... I, that When I first started reading the first parts of this book and, like, looking into this when you reached out to us to do it, like, I... I knew nothing about it, like, even as a Canadian, and it totally caught me off guard. Like, I was expecting to get into something that was, like, you know, a typical UFO story, and this yeah. isn't at all. No, it's anything but. It's so funny. It's so quaint, too, right? A lot of the descriptions and the idea that he's just loafing along, just bobbing. <laughs> yeah. this, this, this little, well, described as a disc, an orb. There's so many shapes of Charlie yeah. and colors of Charlie, too. But yeah, it's so cute, hey? I just imagine almost like a Finding Nemo fish that's just like bobbing through the night sky. I know, right? <laughs> that's, that's a perfect way to put it because, you know, it, if if you had to, you know, picture some kind of friendly image, that, that would probably be it right there. That's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, exact motion and everything. Yeah, you know when when I think about this, like you know for you know the description of charming and friendly and also slow moving and all this kind of stuff, it makes me think that like if this is an extraterrestrial craft or if it's a manned craft, we'll get into that. Obviously, it's it's it seems like it's almost just like a like a lazy joyride from someone who like isn't even driving very fast. You know, like they're just kind of it's just like putzing along. It's like a Sunday. It's a Sunday drive, but for two years. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. It's like, hey, uh, I just I got out of school. What the heck am I, What the heck am I gonna do? I'm gonna go driving with yeah. my buddies. You it's, know, like, that's, it's like a that's drunk driver swerving all over the road. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's very strange. Yeah, it is. And he became so quaint that a lot of people, when they said he was making his appearances, they called them beer runs. <laughs> 
That's awesome. <laughs> I feel like Charlie must have had a few beers before he it went for the run. It seems that way. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you run out. You gotta go and you gotta get some more. That's um, right. I... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh God. So, uh, and, like, it, it's good to know that a lot of people in the area, like, local businesses actually kind of made Charlie a marketing ploy to get yeah. people to come into their business, too. So, you know, good to see some uh, capitalism happening uh, during this flap, too. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Might as well, right? I mean, <laughs> especially Carmen. for rural Manitoba and North Dakota and mm. that kind of thing. Like, what is the industry in Carmen, Manitoba, anyway, uh, I wonder? Wheat? Wheat? Farming? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Like, I don't, yeah. yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> no offense to Manitoba. Like, no. <laughs> at all. Yeah, they're the, the farming belt of Canada. Yeah. Cheers, I man. like wheat. It's good. I, I hate it. I'm a celiac. And they're, through the literature, they are the UFO capital of Canada. Yeah. For whatever reason. Um like two out of the five, you know, famous UFO incidents from Canada actually take place there. So, you know, Charlie mm-hmm. Red Star, and then uh, years before that, you had Stefan Mikulak uh, encountering right. a UFO and ending up getting burned by uh, UFO farts. So, you know, that's it's, right. Right. You know, yeah. <laughs> those deadly those damn ufos need to watch where they're discharging that seriously it's dangerous man it's a dangerous field to be researching in rob it, oh my god i know like <laughs> close encounters it's like i don't want to get too close man no I, I just there's nothing that tells me like when you look at the reports it's look at uh cash landrum no don't get close to it don't yeah and an interesting thing about that, too, is uh, when you talk about uh, UFO sightings where uh, people suffered physical effects, Cash Landrum and the Rendlesham Forest incident, both of them occurred within a day of each other. So wow. that's kind of interesting. And uh, also, those sightings involved craft with like really sharp geometrical designs to them. Uh, in Rendlesham, it was triangular-shaped craft. In Texas, it was diamond-shaped, for whatever <laughs> reason. I don't see it being an efficient flyer, but hey, whatever. You know, yeah, whatever. that doesn't. Yeah, you'd think there'd be some uh, aerodynamic issues with that shape for sure, but uh, who knows? If you're, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. So, getting into the description of Charlie himself, most people described him as a red, glowing, pulsating, bobbing disc that flew ever so slowly and quite close to the ground. Every time that he essentially made an appearance, he would take the same route every time. And (laughs) always low to the ground, like, Sometimes people described it being lower than 100 feet. And moving no faster than a car on the freeway. So. Hmm. That's, that's, yeah, slow. That is, that is unusually slow. And it was interesting, too, that he was able, like we do hear about in other UFO cases, he's able to change direction quite rapidly and actually go from say that sort of slow meandering bobbing sort of motion to more of like a high speed sort of a thing or just 
zipping around. I remember hearing, well, hearing, reading. <laughs> First-hand account here. Yeah. I was there. <laughs> but reading into some of those accounts, um, especially when he was on the highway chasing cars and things like that. And there was that one instance where the I think it was a woman driving down. And she was, I think it was for several miles, Charlie was right on her, just pacing her. And she was going as fast as she could. I can't remember if that was the same woman that had a bunch of kids in the car. It might have been a different one. No, then, I think that was, uh, she was... She had worked on a on a base nearby, and I think she was just going home from the oh, base. Oh, was that, that it? Night. So she was on yeah. her own. And then yeah. what was it? The account when she went to turn was it into her driveway or just off the highway? And she saw Charlie just go straight up into the air. Was how it was described, just like just shooting up. Yeah, it was. I think she had just pulled into her driveway, and then yeah, just boom, right up. Hmm. Very strange. Very strange indeed, and. <laughs> Kind of tying into the similarities, uh, oftentimes when people inside their house would see Charlie, the first thing they would think is their house is on fire because the light is really so intense. Yeah. Like, it's bright, and that's a commonality with a lot of UFOs. People will say that they are brighter than anything that they've ever seen. Totally. And even, um, yeah, just the... Um the description I read in Cameron's book about how he would literally light up the entire countryside. Like it was, it was that it was almost as if the entire country was on fire or something. Like, so that's, that's crazy to me. Like the amount of energy that's emanating from that, like, you know, to cause that type of type of light. I don't know. That's, that's it fascinating to me. And the fact that he would, or he, <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. gendered now, yeah, Charlie. Personified, I feel yeah. like Charlie yeah. could go either That's way, That's a gender-neutral name, yeah. It is, yeah. But yeah. anyways, how he would change um, the intensity of the light, or he would go from red to white, almost as if he was charging, and then people would describe him almost like he's, like, bursting into orbit, like, just shooting off, like, out of Earth's atmosphere type of thing. That yeah. was really interesting to me. It was like, that, that signified some type of some type of energy buildup or something happening inside of that vessel or something Mm -hmm. to cause that potentially if it is an actual physical object right which you know we're we're struggling with it does have a form most often people described it as disc shape with a dome on the top of it but Mm -hmm. which is like it seems so kind of antiquated yeah like for mm. 1975 like this is this is the stuff that you would see on 1950s television or something yeah, like that totally <laughs> you know i got a question for you rob have you yep. like okay so i'm i'm interested with i'm just i'm thinking like hey so with the glowing red light and also we just talked about how it would fly charlie would fly so low to the ground i don't know if this was touched on in the book i never came across or i didn't notice but like did anybody report heat like, mm. was it warm? Like, was there heat coming from? Because if it's such a glowing light lighting up the countryside and flying low, you'd think maybe that would be, mm. you'd be able to notice or something. I don't know. Just a no. thought. No, I didn't read anything about heat of any kind. Mm. And there weren't very many reports of sound. Right. Either. So th- that's pretty interesting. You yeah. Know, because you would figure if... It's some kind of... Oh, God, I'm starting to sound like David Childress, and I hate saying that. (laughs) Some kind of... um... (laughs) Ancient astronaut theorists believe that... But it's you would figure like in in a lot of UFO reports, uh, there is heat being thrown off. Mm -hmm. In some, I mean, in some cases there are 
physical traces. Mm. Right. Uh, I believe in Bobby Baker's case, there were physical traces, but I can't right. exactly remember. But um, we'll, we'll oh. get into the, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the nitty-gritty of the uh, individual mm-hmm. accounts, but there's nobody reporting heat at all that I ever came across. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is very interesting. And at times... Uh, some people would say that it had pink and silvery hue around the craft for whatever reason, while it was uh, glowing red. And at times the front of the object was said to have a blue-green field to it. Weird. Uh, that, yeah, that they would <laughs> see from time to time. But people would also report seeing different shaped craft around this time, not just a disc but also triangular-shaped objects. Right. Uh, that mostly, you know, related to the McCann family, but there were a few other uh, corroborating eyewitnesses that reported that, too. And I believe it was their daughter, Lucy, that actually saw it change from a triangular shape to a red ball and then just speed away. So... Mm. Hmm. Interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. And then people describe seeing this large red Ferris wheel shaped object on yeah. multiple occasions. And I don't even know how to wrap my head around that. Yeah. How, how does, how do you, so Ferris wheel shape, like it's a circle with some stuff in it or is there the whole apparatus too? Like, what does that even mean? That's the thing. I, it seemed like the way that they were describing it, it wasn't just the shape. It was the way it was moving too, because it was like. Like yeah, I was making these large elliptical patterns. Hmm. So, yeah, adding to the what the fuckery of this goddamn <laughs> yeah. flap of sightings. So kidding. I would have paid to see this, like, absolutely. If this was still around, if this was still a thing, like, I would drive to Manitoba. I'd fly to Manitoba to go see. I want <laughs> oh, a Ferris yeah. wheel firework show. I mean... Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd have that uh, spirit of Grant Cameron and just go and be like, "Hey, hey, buds, let's go to let's go to Carmen, Manitoba. Yeah. And let's go see some UFOs." <laughs> Those are the days, man. Damn. The days. Yeah. Nobody, okay. nobody does that anymore. No. Um, no. Uh, we'll, we'll roll up on you out, out in the East Coast one day and be like, "Rob, we're going looking for UFOs." <laughs> we'll bring uh, Brian and Angelo too. Oh yeah, absolutely. They'll. Uh, <laughs> We'll have a great time. I mean, you know, Brian's familiar uh, with the state. He had his picture taken by the Betty and Barney Hill markers. So. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's awesome. So I think uh, just given how much of a super group we would be, we would find UFOs. There's mm. no doubt. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so also during this period, they talked about how people would see essentially – the disc-shaped Charlie Red Star object start shooting out other smaller objects to make mm-hmm. things even more freaking crazy. Um, <laughs> these smaller disc-shaped objects that would just, you know, speed around, do their thing, and then come back. Yeah, I remember hearing that, or hearing, <laughs> <Keep> reading, <laughs> reading about the um, the description from Francis Stagg. And he mm-hmm. described like something like a docking maneuver is how he described it. It was almost like they were um, orbiting around the larger. There was two smaller objects orbiting around a larger object in like in a very regular pattern. And it was it was very it was almost like a figure eight sort of a thing is what 
the diagram of the book sort of resemble maybe mm-hmm. i don't know some sort of reconnaissance or that, something it was very interesting that was like that to me it almost re- like it reminded me of an atom with like electrons shooting around it you know like how there's like a, a force around i don't know and it's just like an energy field like right. i don't know what I, why it's just like that's my analogy that my brain goes to right away but that yeah. makes sense i picture that in my head it's very I get that. Very well i mean that's that's interesting because if you take the UFO to be some kind of visual trigger, some kind of extension of language or whatever, you know, we have like, uh, what, Voyager, like heading out into the cosmos with a gold piece of vinyl on it to have some aliens play it to figure out who we are, where we come from, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, maybe this is some other intelligence's way of saying, hey, we understand how things work. Look at the patterns we can make. Hmm. We're totally more advanced than you. You're not going to be able to understand us, but we'll we'll try in our own way. It's kind of like a crop circle in the air, you know, making these weird patterns. So. Interesting. That's That's a good way of putting it. Totally. Almost like it could be interpreted as a signal of sorts. Yeah. Or, on the other hand, are they just doing their own thing and they don't really care about humanity and the fact that we can see them and whatever, like, right. them, as if it's a thing. It. Or whatever <laughs> it. it whatever yeah. it is. Whatever. I don't know. But that's cool. Like, it, yeah, there's almost, like, two sides of that coin. Yeah. Could just be, look at what our stuff can do. It's totally better than yours. Right. <laughs> just <Where>? showing off. <laughs> yeah. In Manitoba. Of <laughs> all <laughs> well, places, Yeah. <laughs> Like, cause that's yeah, the point so, Cameron makes. He's like, it wasn't, you know, it's, it's strange that this would happen here. Like, you know, it's not New York. It's not LA. It's not Toronto or Vancouver for going up North. Like it's, 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 yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the thing about these UFO sightings. If they're occurring in a large city center, I don't think people would be paying attention to them. It's just the normal hustle and bustle uh, of people walking by each other. Yeah. Hmm. And if you look at the the famous cases, uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, nobody <laughs> knew who that was until the Mothman. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Flatwoods, Exeter, New Hampshire, Snowflake, Arizona, with Travis yeah. Walton. Nobody no nobody <laughs> even knew that Ar- Northern Arizona got snow until Travis Walton came. Along. Yeah, no kidding, eh? <laughs> so I think. Like, maybe that's kind of an extension of the personal nature of a UFO sighting because it really is an intensely personal thing. Because Mm -hmm. during this whole flap, people would gather at a location called Friendship Field. And this was an airfield owned by Anthony Britton. Anthony, well, he was an interesting guy. He... He essentially restored World War II planes. He was, like, the best guy in the world for it at Mm -hmm. the time. Everybody would gather at his airfield to see Charlie because, essentially, Charlie would take the same route every time, which he would come over the American border, up to Carmen, back south along Highway 3, past Jordan, and then back into the United States. And he'd do this pretty much every night for every time that he was seen so Mm -hmm. it's the intensely personal nature of a ufo sighting and how getting into what ryan sprague talks about how it affects people so 
you know, I don't think it would have the same effect as people in, you know, large city centers seeing something. But at the same time, it's obvious that in the United States, for instance, the state with the highest number is California. So yeah. that would make sense. There's more people in California. But when you juxtapose that with Manitoba... <laughs> it's a bit of a contrast. Yeah, and that that's interesting, you know? Yeah. Um, is there something about Manitoba? And I think I made this point before, but when you look at a map of Manitoba, one thing that you notice is that there's water everywhere. Yeah. Just mm. a ton of it. Right. And I mean, like, there's there's a lot of lakes and, and stuff in Canada, period. But when you do look at Manitoba, it's just like, it looks like it's, I don't know, 60% water. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, I guess, um, that's pretty common, yeah, when common it comes to UFOs. Common for UFO sightings, yeah. I, I, I wonder around Carmen how much, how many bodies of water there were and if Charlie was concentrated around those. You don't really get any reports of that or any even mentions. Of no. A, of a, or wait, wasn't there one, Rob? I, I think yes. on the first recording you brought it up. Yes. Yeah. There was one really intense sighting it was on yeah we'll get into the the individual sightings now may 16th 1975 there were five men that were part of this party that was at the stephen field dam reservoir and at 2 a.m the five men walked to the south side of the reservoir just to get away from the party and they ended up standing on this dock they witnessed a red glowing full moon sized object descend and just hover about 200 feet away from them. The object shot a white beam of light between two buoys in the water and an object about six to 10 feet wide, like formed underwater where this beam was hitting and it began to move towards the guys on the dock they were freaking out and who wouldn't be freaking out like that is crazy yeah that's weird but yeah and then one of them has the mind to throw a rock at the object in the water and when it hit it it broke into four pieces and then reassembled themselves into this straight line these four pieces it moved directly back in the direction of the buoys and when it reached the buoys, they disappeared. <laughs> and then the original object broke into two equal-sized objects and then flew away. Now, I, I think that is the strangest account to come from this whole flap. I, I, I don't even know on this one. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of everything, isn't it? I mean... Yeah. yeah, like the link to water we see and like we've we talked about that when we did the first <laughs> our first try at this and about like Lake Baikal when we were looking at uh, looking out there and how many mm-hmm. UFO sightings were above that body of water, which is like mm-hmm. the largest one on Earth. But UFOs and USOs. And that was that I was just going to say. So like USOs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I mean, that obviously wasn't a major part of this whole report there. It's not like people are seeing a ton that that was a unique sighting with these guys. But it makes me wonder, I mean, there's more to it than just the fact that UFOs are interested in fresh water slash, obviously, there's the nuclear angle for this area, too. But mm. I don't know. What would you be tractor beaming underwater there? You know what I mean? Like, what? I don't get it. 
I don't either because it's not like there was anything significant at that reservoir. There's, right. it's just some random reservoir. But like, yeah, this the, this idea of water and nuclear power just comes up over and over and over and over and over again. In America, the top five states with the most UFO sightings are all either by the ocean or parts of them are by the ocean. California, Washington, Texas, New York, and I forget what the other one is. Oh, Florida. Right. There is that connection to water and and whatever it is. And the interesting thing is, is it's not always the ocean. It's just really any kind of body of water. In my state, New York, we have this centering of UFO sightings around the St. Lawrence Riverway. So, yeah, water. What yeah. what the hell's up with it? What yeah. do they need water for? And like even if you want to compare this to the hoaxers like uh Albert Bender and he talked in his book Flying Saucers and the Three Men. I don't believe Albert Bender really for a second. I think mostly he made up his crap just to get attention, but what he said was that the beings that he interacted with, they could disguise themselves to look like humans, but conveniently, their true form was the Flatwoods monster. They were the Flatwoods monster for whatever the hell reason. Crazy. Interesting. Yeah, and the thing about it was is that they transported him to their base in the Antarctic, and what they were doing is they were collecting seawater and somehow converting it into energy. <laughs> okay. okay. So they're just like tractor beaming up like like gallons or thousands of gallons of water or hundreds of thousands of gallons? <laughs> no, like... it's not even that advanced. They literally had, I think, like hoses. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how, I don't know if I buy that. That's weird. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's interesting because I remember reading pretty recently, well, this is like a few weeks back now about the reports in Australia of exactly that, like uh, UFOs over bodies of water in bays. I think it was mostly around ocean areas and coasts. And they were like sucking up huge amounts of water is the reports. And it was from multiple people. I can't remember the exact year off the top of my head. Uh, sorry, Rob. But yeah, no, I... I it's just so funny that, though. It's like if you're bizarre. Yeah, right? like, like if you're sucking up seawater though, like salt water. Okay, if it's a lake and it's inland and you you know you fly over, it's like okay, it might somebody might see me. But if you're looking for salt water, why would you go to the coast? You Unless, could just drop down into the middle of the ocean, suck up some seawater, and then you're back out to wherever, and then you're good to go. That's true. I don't know. It seems or maybe strange. it wasn't the seawater. Like, maybe it was the specimens in the water they're after. Mm, hmm. Mm. <laughs> 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 We're busting it wide open here. Oh We're yeah, you UFOs. Uh, oh yes. Yeah, it all ends Crack tonight. That old chestnut. <laughs> <laughs> Mystery solved. <laughs> yeah. We're on to it. Rich Adam thought he had this thing on lockdown. We just blew him out of the water. So good, good for us. <laughs> yeah. That's okay because he won't hear this. He's not a Patreon subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so we can just rip on him all we want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about that Richard Gere movie, man? What yeah, was I was like gonna, that? I was gonna message him and be like, "Hey, do you still have Richard Gere's contact info?" Like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so I send him a message. Yeah, just say, "Hey, Rich." <laughs> Let's get into the in- individual sightings and talk about some of the ones that piqued our interest. 
There are some that trace the Charlie Red Star flap back to February of 75, even though there isn't a lot of strong documentation for that. But there's one report of a farmer that witnessed a basketball-sized object fly directly over him. And apparently, as he looked up, he felt like hot plastic was poured over his face. So... It's kind of one obscure sighting that I saw on one website. It's interesting to make note, but the first real appearance of Charlie Red Star was March 27th, 1975. There was one man, he chose not to uh, divulge his name, but he was up late watching TV and he sees this large red ball pass by his kitchen window. And he watched it slowly move over towards the neighbor's house, which is the bourgeois house. There was a family staying there uh, with the bourgeois family called the Herberts. Their daughter, Darlene, uh, woke up to their house shaking. And she also heard this shrill, pulsating siren, uh, which isn't reported, I believe, after that really at all, but... She sees this object move fast by her window, so it must have picked up speed. This noise eventually, you know, woke up the entire household, and I think it was one of the bourgeois family actually ended up seeing the object too. So that's kind of the start of this, where we get it. So whoever wants to go next, Hmm. pick a sighting and let's talk about it. Yeah. Okay, just that really just clued my memory there um, when you mentioned the house shaking there, Rob. Because one of mm-hmm. my favorite cases was from Anna McCann. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure, sorry, the exact date of it, but she, in one, I think it was early in the book, probably chapter two, um, she described um, an instance where she ended up spotting two craft land in the forest near her residence. And about, she, I don't know, the case goes, um, I guess, 15 minutes later. She described there was almost like a whirlwind type of action in the forest where they had landed. And she saw basically a whole bunch of, it seemingly broke off branches off trees, stirred up a bunch of ash from a forest fire the year previous into about 30 feet up in the air. And it was accompanied by a deafening rumble, almost like thunder. And she did. She happened to look up and saw a large grayish object ascend from the trees and take off suddenly into the distant horizon. And then later, she actually tried to confirm her experience with a nearby um, vet who was in a... At the time, he was working on a horse or something, or animal of some sort, in a barn. And he tried to tell her that the rumbling was a herd of moose passing by. (laughs) And, yeah, just very interesting. So she describes that shaking. She describes a rumble slash, like, roar type of noise. So I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. And it just kind of goes back, um, again, like, there is several mentions of the animals that react before the humans end up reacting. And uh, this was a different instance, but there was, I think it was the McCann family again, where they were on their farm and they ended up having a sighting. And all of their horses ended up going berserk in the barn, even though they couldn't see the object. There was no sound being emitted. So that, to me, either points to there's sounds being emitted infrasound infrasound right below human hearing level well that infrasound would be at like really well, low something, decibel something like or that. something really high decibel right, yeah. above our whatever but yeah i don't know that's that's that was one of my favorites because it was just ugh, that's weird man and the fact that that dr hill guy he tried to just dis- dismiss it as a herd of moose it's like 
<laughs> is there a herd of moose around? Like, are these common or like what? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like moose are more solitary animals, but uh... they travel with like I, I'm not a biologist, but I'm fairly <laughs> certain that they travel with like a, a cup like small groups. They're not traveling in herds. It's not like buffalo. Right, yeah. And yeah. I have I've seen moose a few times. They're always standing perfectly still. I'm pretty sure moose don't run unless they have to. Unless maybe the other alternative explanation could be that there was a herd of animals nearby that did go berserk as a result of this UFO, the two craft like cattle landing. or something or something. Maybe. I don't know. Herd of wild horses were those around back in the 70s? I don't know. That, what was it called? That those <laughs> buffalo that were supposedly extinct? And the they, wood bison. The wood bison. Yeah, yeah. maybe there's some bison up there. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. Maybe it was just a bunch of guys having a drum solo in the woods. I don't know. Yeah, like, you never know. I mean, that that could be a thing, you know, up in Manitoba. No, no nobody knows. Yeah, I know. <laughs> nobody, yeah. But very interesting, right? Because no, you get two craft in this account. Yeah. And then you get... Another, a large, single grayish object ascend from the same area roughly 15 minutes later. So, again, you, you get these... But not glowing, though. Gray. Just gray. Yeah. I, this was a, a daytime sighting. Okay, so... This was so not night. That so, makes sense, then. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Got the lights turned off? Mm-hmm. Perhaps. They're Perhaps. not necessary. Yeah. Right. Why are lights necessary, though? That's interesting, because, like, with Charlie all the sightings really occurred at night. Mm-hmm. There yeah. aren't a lot of daytime sightings. The daytime sightings are the most fascinating, like for me in all UFO cases, because it's like, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, yeah, like if you see a bright light in the sky, that's one thing to actually see the outline and curvature of a craft is something else altogether. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And it's kind of interesting that with the original UFO sightings that got us kicked off, from the late 40s to the the early 50s, about 95% of them occurred during the day, which is kind of weird because transitions into night sightings after that. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Crazy. Hmm. Well, for Very me, crazy. the one that, that sort of stuck out to me was the um, where they're, the pilots, the two... Uh, Can- I, I, was it you? Was it Canadian Air Force pilots, or was it just? They I can't were remember. government pilots, I okay. believe. Maybe they, no, I don't think they were military. Okay, so mm. 1975 sightings by two two pilots flying westward towards Winnipeg, and they were confronted by like just like your past story here, Amber, where there was multiple UFOs. Yeah. So, the weird part about this is me. So it's like they were dipping and diving around the aircraft, kind of moving similar to how Charlie's been described, like we've been talking about. But I, I mean, assuming moving much more quickly than the seventy kilometers an hour, you know, bobbing hundred feet off the ground, mm-hmm. but the same sort of general, general motion and movement and stuff. But what was so interesting about this is that these pilots are flying and these craft are coming right towards them and like head on, and they just stop instantly midair and reverse without changing anything it's just flying forward at whatever the speed of the aircraft would be and then instantaneously reversing direction so it's that non-ballistic motion that we see mm-hmm. with not UFOs. turning around they not just turning around just, just stop and yeah not or not even <laughs> stop like that's the part it's like i'm trying to wrap my head around it like you're up there flying something's coming at you it's coming towards you clearly moving towards you and then all of a sudden it's not all of a sudden it's moving the other way it's almost like a ricochet it's like, yeah yeah very much like a ricochet david bowie <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, and it's the first sighting for the McCanns. The way that the UFO would kind of toy with them whenever they would turn on their car lights. It would initially coming at them, but when they turned their car lights off, it would back off. Right. And then they'd turn it back on, and then it would come zooming toward them again until they shut them back off. So, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. This object, whatever it is, is able to just not stop, but just change directions instantaneously. Yeah. The other weird part about this one is that it's supposedly just these were not picking up on radar. This was just a straight visual sighting. And I find that interesting because obviously in a lot of other UFO cases, it it picks up on radar. And for us most recently, I was looking at the Felix Monkla over the Great Lakes where that whole story was, what the heck is this on the radar screen? And for this one, there was nothing on radar. It was just the pilots experiencing it for themselves, which is kind of interesting. (laughs) With uh, Felix Monclo, there is an incident that echoes this in Australia. His name was Frederick Valentich in October of 1978. You know, he was a flying saucer enthusiast, but his plane goes missing and he keeps radio back to Melbourne air traffic control that there is a UFO over him and it keeps like playing this game until both he and the UFO disappear from radar. He's never seen again. Bizarre. That is exactly like that. Wow. Interesting. Wait. Spooky. We covered that, didn't we? Like Great Lakes? I don't know. Am I getting confused? You, sorry, that was in Australia. It's oh, similar. Sorry, similar. Yeah. <laughs> exactly in, it was the same Australia. result. I'm trying basically. To, what was the guy's name that we covered from the Great Lakes that disappeared? Sorry, you just dipped out of there on the headphones. So it's Moncla. Felix Moncla. Oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, so I did have the right name. Sorry. Yeah. You're tripping. <laughs> oh my gosh, I thought... Okay, yeah, sorry. It's all good. Yep. Yeah. No, and then Frederick Valentich's story is like, when was Monclo? Like early fifties, right? Yeah, that was fifty six, I think. Fifty six. So, so yeah, yeah. twenty two so, yeah. years later, uh, Frederick Valentich disappeared in his plane. Yeah. Oh, okay. Crazy. What? Yeah, that it is, is bizarre. crazy. Okay, yeah. hey, um, and I have a question too. Sorry, this is totally random, but like, just going back to like Rob, you mentioned you described how Charlie he had a route. He had a regular pattern that yes. was like basically nightly. So my question is. Why wasn't there planes in the sky after him or something? You know what I mean? Like, why was there was only there... the one story I think where they pursued him, right? Like you oh, mentioned that. Was run. that in a car? or Was that in a plane? I can't remember. There's definitely multiple stories of them pursuing from the ground, right? Just just citizens, not like government or military or anything, right? 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 Maybe that's still classified. I don't know. Maybe that's they a were good question. on the case. Who knows? Hmm. That is interesting because. I don't know how Canada works their policy regarding UFOs and and pursuing them in the air. Mm -hmm. I don't even know if they have one. Uh, As opposed to early on in the United States, you had with the uh, Thomas Mantell incident, they had him pursue this object and like he ends up dying in pursuit of it. And it's not the only one, but... There aren't a lot of incidents where, at least in Canada that I've ever read, where military pilots are engaging with UFOs. Right. I, I've never heard of it. Yeah. Hmm. Too polite. Uh, too polite <laughs> too to engage with these. It's just like, hey, listen, we'll share our airspace. Come on over. Apparently. 
because that is strange that they wouldn't have been yeah like people wouldn't have noticed military aircraft i mean you'd think they'd send send some out there to kind of see what's up or to see if it got picked up on especially after the uh instance with that i just talked about like with the government pilots mm. right i mean yeah you're getting spooked flying that's not exactly safe you'd think the uh yeah there'd be some sort of record or some yeah sort that of there'd be to, yeah to measure that that maybe happened or not right. i don't know but it all just sort of seems to get swept under the rug. The only thing that I came across when I was sort of looking into Canadian government involvement with UFOs was this one post that was set up in, I believe, in Manitoba, in northern Manitoba. And it was, it was like a unique sort of just an experiment where they set up a bunch of different sort of measurements. They had, uh, they had electromagnetic, uh, measurement tools. I don't even know how to describe <laughs> <laughs> My brain isn't working right now. But they had all sorts of it's ways good. to to maybe account for or just try and measure any sort of um unexplained aerial phenomena in the area. And right. I don't know if there was actually any conclusive results or anything. But I know yeah. it, it basically the description sounded like they had a little tiny shack. Like a like an ice fishing shack in the middle of the province or something, and that's, they were just just hoping there's this one guy out there, and he's just looking up in the sky, just just waiting. That's that's can, that's the Canadian government. That's the Canadian government, yeah. in a nutshell. Great. But that was the only thing I came across with like the Canadian government in Grant Cameron's book. I never actually came across no. any reports of say RCMP involvement or anything like that. No. There was one instance where there was an individual. I don't think he gave his name, mm, but okay. there was this one individual who said he saw two RCMP officers pursue Charlie one night in their car, mm. and they stopped at one point to try and look at it through a pair of binoculars, and then they just sped away, but that was the only instance I came across where like, any government body was trying to do that. Huh. <laughs> Actually, that is kind of ringing a bell now that you bring that up. Yeah. And wasn't it kind of, like, fishy? Wasn't he almost, like, uncertain whether it actually was RCMP or whether he just kind of assumed it was? Yeah. Yeah, yeah he could... I don't think he could see markings on their car. Right. Uh, but again, it was at night, so, you know, that, that it'd be tough to see, but... Yeah. Not a lot yeah, of street lamps was... in that area. <laughs> no. no not, not in Manitoba, <laughs> apparently. You know what? If anybody listening to this is is from Manitoba, tell me how many streetlights do you have in Manitoba? (laughs) Just, just tell me. I mean, Winnipeg's got lots. Carmen, I'm thinking probably not a ton. (laughs) No, no, I can't. I can't imagine. They're they're probably just dark backcountry roads. A lot of them. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, that's that's even interesting too because even like Anthony Britton, he became like kind of the expert in the area on charlie where the best spots to see him were because at certain points like everybody would gather at his airfield friendship field but he's like no i've got the best spot and i'm not bringing everybody with me so you know bring a a few people with him and sure enough they they get really close to seeing charlie but why didn't he go up he was a pilot why Mm, why not I mean, he pursued in a car, mm-hmm. like, every time. But, like, he never pursued in an airplane. Yeah. Hmm. So that kind of makes you wonder. Yeah. Like, maybe for him, it's like, I don't have anything to engage with it on my plane, so why go up? But at the same time, I've never heard of 
the Canadian Air Force ever pursuing a UFO. It's just never seen a report. That's not to say that it hasn't happened, but I've never seen anything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get those reports of them, uh, yeah, pursuing bogeys or unidentified, yeah. Like, just, like it's the just off cookies. record. Just off record, Perhaps, I guess. or just classified yeah, or something. Exactly. That is interesting, though, that point about Anthony never pursuing, because he obviously had an avid fixation on this Charlie. Yeah. And it, like, you know, it was around for two years. You think he would get in his plane and just kind of be circling around. Even just around. to get a closer look. It, like, if it is that regular, right, you think yeah. there would be some way to sort of, I don't know, I don't know. I wonder if Anthony's still around. Is he I, still kicking? Probably not. No? I'm guessing mm. probably not. No, probably. I Yeah, I'm not thinking so because this is... Hmm. A while back. <laughs> we're, we're talking like yeah. over, what, like 40 years later? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> Might be like 120-something. He's still kicking. He's I guess good. he was pretty old at the time, too. I wonder what his age was yeah. at that moment. I think he was kind of like middle-aged at the time, maybe. Yeah. The yeah. photos that were in the book seem to, yeah, suggest that, that he was probably in his 50s or 60s or something. I don't know. Yeah, you think he would have gone up, though. Like you said, though, Rob, even if he wouldn't have been able to actually, like, do anything, it's not like you're going to, like, try to shoot it down even... or something. Or, but, like, just to get a closer look. Like, just to yeah. see if anything was different and there up was, in the air. And just, yeah, to get a closer look and to get photographs. Because there was that yeah. one photographer, her name escapes me, was it... Janet or something. There was a one local photographer. She ended up getting a few photos of Charlie, and she that would have been really helpful, right? If you could yeah. actually get in the air, maybe pursue it at high speed, or maybe they just thought it was too much of a risk. I don't know. Yeah, her name was. Um, um, was yeah, it? it was. I think it was Janet. Something. Um, yeah. Because like, Charlie became famous in like mid May of t- nineteen seventy five, and then. You had TV crews going out and trying to capture footage, which mm-hmm. they did at one point. It's called the CKY TV movie footage. And I have a link to it that I'll try to post in the notes, although Patreon's like descriptions are kind of weird. But there's this two-minute or so video segment that Jacques Vallée introduces and and says, you know, something to the effect of this is, you know, definitive UFO footage. And um, it, it's interesting. It's probably the only footage of Charlie that I think exists. So hmm. that's cool. Cause that I actually, really cool. I tried to look for that on YouTube and I didn't actually find the, that exact footage from CKY TV, mm-hmm. but that's interesting because yeah, and they were out uh, fairly regular, fa- fairly regularly. Jeez, that's a mouthful. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> Is it? I don't know. And it's interesting too. We haven't actually mentioned this yet, but the idea that Charlie was usually concentrated around um, like radio communication towers and sometimes even just uh, like um, telephone poles and things like that. And so that to me is like, what is that? Is that a source of energy? Is that a source of communication? Is is there some significance or is it just a coincidence? Because a lot of these crews were actually focused on, I can't remember if it was one specific tower or if there was a multiple in the area, but I think, isn't that where they got that footage in the end, Rob? Yeah, there's a TV tower. I believe it's either in Carmen or just outside of Carmen that people would gather around. And I think it was uh, CKY-TV's actual tower. Oh. But oh. I believe Charlie would pass by there pretty much every night. But the interesting thing is is that when 
the cameras started to show up, Charlie kind of got smart mm. and yeah. was good at evading the cameras, you know, or at least, you know, he knew how to take good photos. Let's just say that. <laughs> and he knew when he wanted to take good photos, which was practically never. Yeah. So it alludes to something that is intelligent and kind of omniscient. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Has some sort of way to... Um perceive uh the intention of the people around or just to react to it which which makes me lean i mean we're sort of moving slowly towards the theories section but that sort of makes me think that it's (laughs) not a craft but it is in and of itself a entity entity. Mm. because if it's a craft that's being piloted it's obviously if it's a craft to be piloted they would have you know advanced technology or whatever to be able to see what's happening on the ground to avoid photographs or avoid whatever but it just it just it sounds cumbersome like to be monitoring right like if you're out there doing whatever you're doing you're not going to be that concerned about it it seems like more Mm -hmm. of a metaphysical entity to me charlie Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. overall it definitely yeah plays into the interdimensional ultra terrestrial kind of idea of for whatever reason and like maybe it's just the way that we divide our hypotheses up wherein uh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis specifically deals with nuts and bolts crafts and yeah visitors from other planets whereas the interdimensional beings somehow have the ability to do more advanced stuff simply because the perception of this object this phenomenon this flap is largely controlled so yeah that is interesting that is an interesting way to go about it because charlie's not easily defined it's almost like he's trying to act like a person like just like an average normal person and and it sounds weird to say that but just he doesn't fit the normal characteristics for a ufo no Mm -hmm. so that's pretty interesting. And then he has these moments where it's just, I'm getting a little too close. I got to get the hell out of here. So it's almost, it's almost these... childish in a way. Yeah. It's playful. Yeah. Playful. Mm-hmm. Playful. Whimsical. Yeah. Let's do a few more sightings before we, uh, we get into the, the theories. Um, so, uh, there was one significant one from Peter and Linda Chikimsky. Mm. They were, driving home from Winnipeg, they had been shopping the whole day, and they had noticed Charlie near a microwave tower. Huh. At the time, you know, he was just basically a blinking red light. But then the object pulled closer, and it became just a bright red light. It wasn't blinking anymore. It kept pace with their car, and the Chikimskis pull into the driveway of this man named Walter Danowitz, they watch as the object flies over his house twice and then takes off. And then they pile back in the car again and continue to pursue Charlie. They keep pace with it. And that's, you know, the interesting thing is like for a UFO, like Charlie is driving well below the speed limit. (laughs) (laughs) They continue to pursue him onto the property of a man named David Roman. And the interesting thing is, is like they're going miles at a time, but yet 
the Chikimskis know all these people, and they're all fine with them, you know, just, like, driving on their property. Maybe it's just that Canadian-friendly thing. I don't know. But um, the object eventually lands on this guy's property, and Peter had ran inside to get David Roman to come out and see it. And it was Linda Chikimsky that actually watched the craft land, and the lights just shut off. And she kind of got freaked out. She was alone in the vehicle. And uh, when Peter finally returned, he, he ended up grabbing a flashlight out of his truck to shine a light on it to see where it was. They couldn't really find it very well. But when the flashlight turned off, the object lit up, and it lifted off and landed on a runway at Aspen Air Force Base. And then it eventually lifted up and flew off in the direction of Winnipeg. So... <laughs> That's one of the really interesting sightings. And the thing is, is that it was corroborated by a woman named Doris and her 13-year-old daughter who actually saw the object land on David Roman's lawn. So wow. that's interesting. Yeah, mm-hmm. a corroborated story. That's, yeah, no, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Multiple witnesses. And it sounds like, it's sort of funny though, it's like, it sounds like it was sort of, str- not struggling to take off, but just like it was sort of a like low power. awkward take off at an angle, land somewhere nearby, and then take off again. It's interesting. <laughs> Having engine troubles? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like, Forgot to refuel. That, you know, navigation issues? <laughs> they don't want to ask Maybe. for directions. <laughs> yeah, don't want to ask for directions. <laughs> They're looking at the map, okay? Just leave them alone. <laughs> Pull over, we need to get directions. (laughs) Excuse me, can you tell me where America is? Yeah, Charlie's just like some really old space couple that just is lost for two years. They're just driving back and forth on the same route. It's like red, green, and alien form. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Old man. It's so true. It's so true. That is a really cool story, though, actually. I kind of forgot about that one. That's, that's, uh, Mm -hmm. yeah. I like that one. When you started out and you're talking about the, what was it, the Chesinskis? Ch- 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 Is that their last name? Chesinski. Ch- Ch- okay. Yeah. And when you're like, oh, and they're coming back from shopping. That totally triggered in my mind that story from uh, 1952 from the Flatwoods Monster case. And like the, the day after that initial sighting with the boys and everything oh. in the woods and how there's the couple coming home from church or from shopping and whatever. And then they encountered it obviously veered drastically into a different direction after that but yeah. i was just like yeah. Oh, yeah i had a flashback there i was like oh my gosh <laughs> parallels <laughs> that is a really cool story though i like that one she's Ch- i'm still trying chesimski's chikimski okay that is it sounds that's... polish i'm thinking probably, probably yeah uh, hmm. yeah i mean that that very well could be you know it's, it's tough um... to pronounce those eastern european names sometimes <laughs> and and, the, and like I I assume like I don't I don't know this for sure because um Stefan Mikolak he was Polish I believe he was a Polish immigrant. Okay. I assume that maybe I don't know Manitoba became a hub for uh Polish immigrants or something yeah. something after World War 2 cuz very well you know, could, that, have been. That could have been. Yeah. Totally. There's pockets of um all over Canada where, like very much like the US too where there's communities of different uh People from Europe, for sure, after the 40s. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I do not know, though, but that makes sense. Because, yeah, Mikulak. Yeah, it definitely stands out in Canada. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, no kidding. <laughs> I think the the last really interesting story 
um, and I don't know if you you two have it, uh, is uh, Bobby Baker's story. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Amber, you... you that uh, was another one of my favorites. Yeah. And I... <laughs> yeah, I definitely wanted to touch on that one, just because it was... It really was one of the only accounts from this whole Charlie Red Star thing that had, was, like, fear-based for me. Like, you don't really get a lot of accounts where people are in awe, they're amazed, they're, they're, they're following, they're pursuing this thing. Mm-hmm. They're not terrified this boy was terrified and mind you he was quite young he was about eight years old at the time and he was described at the time of the interview with grant when he entered their household and sat down with him he was described as timid and withdrawn and with a far-off blank expression on his face as if his mind were somewhere else entirely and he was also physically described as frail so I don't know if that was a result of his experience or if he was just like that already, but he kind of reminds me of the sixth sense boy, <laughs> you know, he's just living <laughs> yeah. in fear and just like, he's in his own world. And like, he, he has these experiences that kind of take him away from the everyday and sort of put him in this perennial state of just kind of terror until he's, until Bruce Willis comes along and helps him understand. <laughs> right. But yeah, no. so this Bobby Baker, yeah, it was very, very interesting. And Cameron, at one point, he described how when he went to sit down with Bobby, he kind of, it almost appeared as if Bobby thought he was going to attack him. Like, he was he was just that withdrawn. He was His to, body the far, language was like... to the far corner. I think he was facing out a window, just yeah. kind of just blank. And his dad actually had to do a lot of coaxing to get Bobby to sort of tell him the main elements of the story and what happened to him. And it was so so interesting so basically bobby's account um he witnessed an object that was huge like what he described as as big of as a house and saucer shaped so we don't get any triangles we don't get any ferris wheels with this one saucer and he was the only one of the family it was a family of four and he was the only one that witnessed it and his 10 year old sister um i guess came up right after the event and just saw like her brother was just like white as a sheet just just standing just kind of just petrified petrified yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly like in harry, harry potter hey harry potter <laughs> <laughs> the less harry, popular version harry uh, potter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness that's my dyslexia <laughs> okay <laughs> but anyways yeah so he basically described how this um saucer shaped huge object kind of came up upon him as he was outside the family farmhouse and it actually terrified his pony. I believe it was a pony. And he was out with his pony at the time. And he, the pony just took off. Yeah. Like, And this was only about 50 feet in the air, this object. So it was quite close. Yeah. And it was described by Bobby as changing colors, like we've already mentioned. So it goes from a green to a white and then a blood red. And then just, boom, just took off. Just like, poof. and Or actually, no, sorry. Before it took off, it hovered. It was a yellow color. It's weird. So you get... Green, then white, then blood red, then yellow. So four different colors of Charlie. It's almost like a stoplight. Yeah, yeah, mm. almost. That's, mm. uh, that's that's bizarre. Yeah, and uh, and after his experience, he actually um, he reported that he had a multitude of headaches and the first nosebleed of his life, which I'm not sure if that could be interpreted as uh, I don't know, like a physical ailment as a result or just a stress. Um, well, what would symptom. that be like in terms of like contact of the blank? kind if 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 it would be a close encounter of the, the second, second kind. kind right okay 
Of the blank. <laughs> Fill in the blank. <laughs> Can we, I, sorry, Rob, I feel like this is just a uh, minutia for you, but like, what is the difference between second kind and, and third kind? A second kind is when a physical or physiological effect on uh, right. either the environment or a person is experienced. A close encounter of the third kind is when beings, humanoids, occupants are seen. Oh. Okay. That's the only major difference. And then, right. Sorry, the fourth kind would be abduction? Physical, yeah. Or... The original intention of the Close Encounter of the Fourth Kind was that it was for people who, when they came into contact with UFOs or beings, had a transformative experience. Oh. But it wasn't until, I would say, maybe Stephen Greer kind of repurposed that term and it became, you know, abduction. Right. So, yeah, that's kind of what when you get into the classifications and I mean like they go all the way up to CE seven and even CE five is kind of pointless because it's basically a communication with an alien being or, or a higher form of intelligence, (laughs) whatever the hell Steven Greer wanted to, you know, parade around. And there's a close encounter of the sixth kind, which is when a UFO kills somebody and the close encounter of the seventh kind is when alien banging is happening. Ah, that's basically <laughs> it. Right. You guys briefly touched on that with uh, rich. Hey, <laughs> there was some, uh, uh free y- stuff. Y- it kind of just kept going back. To that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a hot topic. Really? Oh, I smell a new movie. You don't really uh, hear a lot about that. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the, the interesting thing about um, Bobby Baker's case, and um, this is something that uh, in my short time at MUFON, when I was looking at cases on the Internal Review Board, there was one case I came across, and when you were talking about this, it kind of ticked some boxes for me. So I went to the spreadsheet that we that we had for looking at these cases, and there was this one gentleman who it would be considered a historic case because it's from 1967, but he remembered the exact date. It was um, January 10th, 1967. He saw multiple lights in the sky that ended up hovering near his barn. And from what I understand, it was red lights. Hmm. All of a sudden, his dog just started going nuts. Mm. And he ended up I believe coming down with a headache of some kind and he ended up feeling uh physiological effects as well. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that, no, no doubt. Yeah, it's a parallel for sure. Yeah. I wonder how common that actually is with uh UFO experiences and getting these like I, I well, is there is there a clear correlation between UFO experiences or say maybe more regular UFO experiences and then maybe Uh, the development of cancers or other sort of like tumors or other things, Rob, have you kind of come across a a correlation there or is that reaching? We mentioned it earlier, but the cash Landrum sighting and the Rendlesham forest, the guys at Rendlesham, I don't think ended up getting cancer, but they've had health problems ever since. And in cash Landrum, I believe Betty and Vicky both ended up with cancer. So hmm. there are in some cases. Yeah. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, um, when we were, we were researching for Flatwoods, yeah. we did come across that actually. Now yeah, that same, I'm sorry, I'm there. jogging my own memory here. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's been a long day. Sorry. I, my work day started at 6.30 this morning. So. <laughs> but now i got yeah. wine in my hand, so I'm good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good you know it's it's all good i know how, those long work days i i completely understand <laughs> <laughs> busy busy but this is this is what i live for really so yeah it's fine yeah but yeah that was um a, definitely a thing right there was a lot of uh flatwood monsters um witnesses that later on that first group they later on had lung cancer and some other Maybe, forms of cancer and things I don't like know. that. A lot of people try to explain those sightings as a result of the gases from the coal mines. So maybe the coal mines were giving people cancer. I don't know. Could be other other factors involved. Here. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that's uh, the the oddities of that case. It's just <laughs> uh, where do you even begin? Because if you're gonna try and tell people that it was a owl perched on a tree right yeah Gliding i mean i respect joe nickel but i don't buy a lot of that no. stuff. i i don't respect joe nickel okay. but that's just me <laughs> <laughs> i mean i like a couple of his books i got i have his lake monster mysteries book and like i buy like i some of his theories i'm like okay i could get that like some of them yeah <laughs> some of them not so some much. of them are just as much of a reach as the as the paranormal side like so, an owl perched on yeah. a branch that the perfect height that happens to be in a misty night like you, you know would what I mean? think so, you would think though out of how many people were in that initial sighting that one of them would have been like guys it was an owl it was just an owl like <laughs> yeah. i've seen it guys, i saw it yeah. and it is an owl <laughs> like, i've seen it I've and it. i mean like one of them had a flashlight he's shown it right on them right yeah. so yeah like I'm pretty sure you with the light illuminated you would to tell yeah. that it's an owl on a tree. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cuz like then you get the the very detailed descriptions of tubes coming from and like you know emitting these um these steam or smoke or whatever it was, the noxious yeah. fumes. It's turned into a <laughs> mm-hmm. flat, Flatwoods monster episode. Sorry. Right <laughs> We're getting off topic now. <laughs> Oh, man. Maybe they're one of the same. Charlie is Flatwood. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, not. like, and there are people that have uh, tried to connect, you know, the Flatwoods incident with the 52 flap in the United States in and around Washington saying that people saw UFOs heading in the direction of Washington and stuff like that. Like, totally. And I think that mostly comes from... Uh, Frank uh, oh, yes. Fraschino. Yes, his yeah, uh, Braxton like... County Monster book. Yeah, yeah I read yeah. the intro. I, I didn't buy the book, but I read the Google preview, <laughs> all that it allowed me. And I thought that <laughs> was interesting. interesting. Yeah, he yeah. called it, what was it, Defense Day or something? Um, it was September September 12th, 1952, where there was a whole wave of UFO sightings, supposedly. And then he tried to connect it to, what was it, Project Blue Book, some sort of um, inconsistency with their report, where in California mm-hmm. there was a sighting that was reported at about 4 p.m. or 4.14 or something p.m., and they, they cited it at 7 p.m.? But that mm-hmm. could easily be explained. Like, he, that author, he tried to, like, allude to it as a conspiracy of sorts, but maybe that was just a mix-up with like central versus pacific time or whatever like i feel like that could probably maybe easily happen but i don't know that's a reach for me i'm just kind of yeah but super interesting yeah because i have that book it's trying to wrap it into the the whole conspiracy element because Mm -hmm. yeah 52 was a was a huge year for ufo sightings um and then the ufo sightings over washington dc pushes the government to create the Robertson panel to just downplay it all and hmm. 
Flatwood stands out on its own. It's its own thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's kind of hard for me to, to like tie it into that, but it's an interesting line of theory, especially if, you know, there are UFO sightings reported the same day that it, that it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't seem very um helpful or purposeful to just change the time of the sighting by three hours like what's the what would be the significance of that i feel like that's kind of uh kind of a deadhead (laughs) so to speak you know yeah uh, yeah i don't see the point of that either yeah i don't know Mm -hmm. mind you yeah i i you should send that over to us (laughs) (laughs) just just mail it over to canada for a little bit Yeah, no problem. I'll send it right over to you. <laughs> I'm still working on that other book he sent us to. <laughs> I keep just picking it up and I'll read a few pages or a chapter or two and I'll be like, whoa. <laughs> Put it down for like three weeks and then pick it back up. <laughs> it's so it's kind of one of those books that you you have to just because it's so damn crazy yeah. what he's saying in it. It's, it's intense, just, man. Oh, reverse engineer, reverse engineer, yeah. reverse engineer. Yeah. Um, cool. I'm on the part where he was talking about... Actually, no, I got past that, but he was talking about that crazy like laser beam that the... Um, what part of the military was he involved with? It was the Air Force, wasn't it? Yeah. Okay, and they yeah. had the one... He was describing how different segments of the government had different artifacts from the Roswell crash, and how they happened to have in their possession this uh, laser thing that <laughs> cut through. And I had... I, I, this is a total tangent right now. <laughs> Sorry. But <laughs> no, I was just like... Good. I was so fascinated with that, and, and I was just thinking in regards to, like, Skinwalker Ranch and all the cattle mutilations and things like that, and how maybe this tool could have been used for that or something and i don't know i'm just going through a whole uh this is this is my brain it's a domino effect it doesn't brain right now. it doesn't make any sense my brain and my inner world <laughs> you know it is that's it is. okay i think it makes a little more sense than what he's peddling in that book <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm just trying oh, to make it logical make it make sense there you go <laughs> What you're going to find over and over again is that a lot of people can't make logic or sense out of any of this. Yeah, yeah. no kidding. Yeah, yeah it totally. definitely evades Well, especially, that. and that Charlie Red Star is the cherry on top of that. Really, yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like the bastard cousin that nobody talks about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just hanging off out, doing its own thing, but like it's never at the family reunions, and if it is, it's just in the corner talking to itself <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. That's a great analogy. The misfit <laughs> UFO. Yeah. Poor Charlie. <laughs> I feel bad for Amongst now. other UFOs. I'm glad we're talking about him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah right? Keeping keeping Charlie alive, you know, schooling the masses. Exactly. I dig that. <laughs> so let's start to get into the theories here. Sure. And we've kind of touched on one of them, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a second. The one that people tried to pin on uh, Charlie Red Star more than any is the the idea that what people were seeing were car lights. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Just in the way that people described it, I called so much bullshit on it when I read it. I'm like, car lights? Those are some high and, beams if they're car lights. Yeah. <laughs> and I think one of the most fascinating things about UFOs is that they don't project light outward for whatever reason. They don't generally project light outward unless it's uh, an abduction account, unless it's like a beam. Yeah. And it's this controlled beam. Otherwise, the object, when it's lit up, it's not projecting light out 
for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It's somehow able to, you know, contain itself. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Charlie's not really giving off light. He's just, you know, just really bright and and very distinguishable. Uh, Like, describing him as a star is is pretty perfect in many ways. So, the car lights theory, you know, they tested this and it didn't match... Yeah, the car lights theory is bunk, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Um, that's that's just that's, that's crazy. such a reach. That's more of a reach than the owl theory. Absolutely, like, well, totally. <laughs> no, it, it, it is though, seriously, really because it's like people are seeing it multiple locations. It's moving around. Yeah. So unless someone's driving There's, in a weird pattern and pointing their yeah, super like bobbing, crazy, pulsating, yeah, but no. then the other objects kind of. Um, um, hovering around and orbiting around it too or even like docking away from it and all this type of thing like that is not what, what a about car the looks steppenfield like. de- reservoir in- experience like yeah that's you know I, I that ain't no damn freaking you know no. car light that's no. for sure i mean unless there's some aquatic species and they got underwater cars and they're shining their brights up at you which is just as crazy yeah. like i mean yeah it, it doesn't doesn't make sense no and when people talk about the Lonnie Zamora sighting in 1964 and Lonnie Zamora, the cop sees this egg shaped object land in the desert and he sees people outside it doing whatever. And they get back in their object and it lifts off and they talk about how, well, Oh, this must've been a lunar lander of some kind. Well, we, we know one that they didn't develop a lunar lander, uh, in the United States until 65 one year later but secondly why the hell would your lunar lander be able to outperform the actual lunar lander (laughs) (laughs) it could somehow you know silently just speed away no No. i i don't think so yeah yeah (laughs) you'd think they'd be using their better technology yeah no kidding (laughs) instead of just yeah (laughs) (laughs) they're just like disguising themselves as inferior and then you like maybe well maybe they are secretly harboring this technology and they're using it in ways that nobody knows about. <laughs> conspiracy Nefarious conspiracy. Sorry, yeah. you know, I'm really I'm getting into it here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's you know that is interesting. Maybe you downplay what you have and and stuff like that. But at, at a certain point, why would you then parade that technology out in front of people? It's not like area where it landed was like far away from people it wasn't directly in town but it wasn't that far outside of town either and it was right next to a highway yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah you'd think there'd be better places to conduct such secretive tests and things yeah and the interesting thing about this particular object is that hours before on the other side of the country in New York there was a similar object sighted in new york i think it was like somewhere in southern new york or something like that i can't remember the exact uh town but this farmer ends up uh coming across this land he's looking to expand uh his farm and he sees this object and he sees these two people outside doing whatever they're doing gathering whatever whatever samples that they are and they approach this farmer and they say, uh, we're men from Mars. Bring us fertilizer. <laughs> <laughs> what? And uh, the kicker is, is like the guy goes and gets the fertilizer. <laughs> and as he's 
you know, leaving to do it, the craft lifts off and, 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 you know, speeds off. But the interesting thing is, is he brings the fertilizer back. He leaves it. And the next day he goes out there and it's gone. Hmm. Yeah. The fertilizer. It is crazy. <laughs> what? What would you need fertilizer? What for? Yeah. yeah. That's exactly, and you know what do men from Mars need fertilizer for? Unless you know this is like the Martian, and you're you know uh, farming taters in your own poo. Yeah, I I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I can't think of anything else. Hmm. Like, <laughs> Matt Damon, where's that? <laughs> yeah, you know maybe it was Matt Damon. Maybe he was flying that damn thing. A, I don't know. <laughs> it was just Matt Damon the whole time. Joyride. <laughs> God. I think we're starting to lose it here. Uh, I think we lost it a while ago, but that's okay. That's what makes these episodes great. Uh, so, another theory that Cameron presents and that we uh, that I alluded to in the beginning is that he believes that this UFO was basically hanging around military installations where nuclear missiles were being kept. Right. And that, you know, it was interested in, you know, nuclear ordnance for for whatever reason. And, you know, the U.S. has a deep history of UFOs appearing over nuclear installations. Cameron mentioned a bunch of them in that quote toward the beginning of the episode. Mm -hmm. And even in um, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, where they have, I forget what the heck is there. It's like a nuclear power plant or something. They've had a history of UFO sightings going back to 1947 and even just military air force bases they don't even have to have nuclear ordnance there ufos are sighted over there it's interesting but i think in terms of the way cameron frames it in this book i don't think that plays as big a part as he's letting on just because Charlie's not really sighted around you know these nuclear installations mm-hmm. yeah all that much so i think he's kind of you know it's kind of a stretch for him i feel like he was kind of bringing it up almost to just bring it some more legitimacy as a ufo story to make it sound more serious a little bit almost like it's you know you know what i mean because if if it if that was the case if if it is if charlie was you know there to survey nuclear anything you'd think it wouldn't take two years (laughs) You know what mm-hmm. I mean, and it and it wouldn't and it wouldn't um, be done in a way that's this you know crazy different lights and bobbing slowly and showing up and scaring Bobby Baker and mm-hmm. you know what I mean like it's definitely wasn't targeting those areas yeah that's, yeah that, yeah it does seem like a stretch so it's like like you say Rob like it's a very common thing with UFO sightings and I feel like maybe that's just why he kind of leaned that way it's just mm-hmm. already been a precedent set so he's like well that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. And he also has this reputation around as kind of like a military UFO historian. And in many contexts, on many different shows, that's how he comes across huh. is that he knows about all these uh, UFO sightings uh, near military installations and all that stuff. And he knows, like, he knows what the president knows, which I don't think the president knows jack shit, but, you know, he thinks he thinks that the president knows everything. Um, yeah, I, he, the thing is, is, like, you present the eye, eyewitness accounts from hundreds of people in this book, and you feel you need to bring it more legitimacy 
yeah. by tying it into nuclear missile installations. That kind of does a disservice. Here. I, I agree. I would agree. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So Grant Cameron, I'm putting you on notice here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it was also really random. It did seem random to me. I don't know if he ended up tying it in back at the end of the book or retouching on it. I can't even remember his name off the top of my head, but he he opened the intro talking about that astronaut that supposedly saw UFOs on the moon when he was there. <laughs> do you remember reading that, Rog? Yeah. yeah. I do name? remember I it, know. and the thing is, is, like, there is this... Oh, James Irwin. That was it. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. and there are a number of astronauts that claim that UFOs were uh, a big part of the Apollo moon program. Hmm. There's rumors allegedly that uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin saw there were UFOs that were landed on the moon watching them as they were doing whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's that story. Um, There's a story of... Gordon Cooper, who I he was one of the Mercury Seven astronauts, so like the first space program the United States had. He allegedly saw a UFO while he was in orbit. Um, Gemini Eight, Jim Lovell, who was the commander of Apollo Thirteen, he allegedly saw UFOs with i'm trying to remember who was with him i think it might have been frank borman or something like that the biggest proponent of ufos in the astronaut corps was edgar mitchell Hmm. he walked on the moon on apollo 14 so okay i mean it's 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 not uncommon not uncommon this is interesting he started the book that with with that though it's interesting but it did strike me as kind of he was just i i don't know if he was trying to use that as a way to bolster just the idea like the the legitimacy of the idea of ufos is actually existing i honestly i was kind of just i was a little bit thrown because obviously james Irwin doesn't really come to the picture with charlie per se it was just kind of setting this example of an of an individual who claimed to have seen something unusual during the course of his um, duties and then was basically intimidated and threatened um, several times after trying to share his story. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, I don't know, I just thought that was a really interesting little anecdote that he kind of... Did he end? Well, <laughs> you didn't end up reading the end of the book. <laughs> I didn't end up reading the end of the book. <laughs> no one knows Let's if he ends up... Let's announce that to the world. Maybe he has a beautiful little story or whatever in the end that I ties it all it. together. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ask Grand Cameron. Yeah, probably not, but you know. It's... Yeah, that is cool though eh. to hear that other astronauts have come out and said similar things. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, like that goes along with the just numerous military pilots that claim to have encountered UFOs in the air on routine patrols, mm-hmm. and even at certain points being scrambled to, you know, intercept UFOs and stuff like that. It's there, there's definitely a rich history of UFO encounters and government officials. Yeah. Just hmm. always there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So so where are you leaning on this, Rob? I mean, uh, I mean, I know it's kind of all over the map, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> I had talked numerous times before about my struggles with 
the extraterrestrial hypothesis just based on the idea that people want to believe that these are physical nuts and bolts kind of craft when the the truth of the matter is we don't really have evidence of that right you have interesting cases of like the the ones that have touched ufos i i I find those cases to be interesting like stefan mikulak he ended up touching a ufo and it ended up burning his glove yeah and you had the guys at Rendlesham, they ended up touching, like, James Penniston ended up touching the object. And he said that, uh, I think it, he felt the vibration or something like that. And then, you know, in, in 2010, he comes forth with this narrative saying that he essentially got this binary code message, like, in his, implanted in his head or something like that. <laughs> and, like, that, it's like, eh. Okay. Um, yeah, not sure. I believe that, but uh, it's it's interesting. So I don't I I, I don't buy the extraterrestrial stuff okay. here. I have always leaned a little more towards the interdimensional, just because. And I mean, there are like I'm sure there are scientists that would say, uh, well, that 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 doesn't make sense. And I and I think like Cogswell has said it to me before, but it's just I I don't buy the 100% physicality of these experiences. Yeah. Mostly because they defy, they're, they're not 100% physical for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, whether you're looking at just a singular UFO report from somebody or you're talking about an alien abduction, they are not 100% physical. Right. There are non-physical things that people describe over and over again in these accounts. So... When you look at it, it's like one of these things is not like the other. So to me, I'm leaning, yeah, definitely more interdimensional. Cool. I mean, yeah, I already kind of (laughs) made made that clear from my theory a few minutes ago, but I'm totally with you because, yeah, I agree. I mean, like this idea, yeah, like you said, like nuts and bolts, crafts. I mean, especially when you describe it like that, it just sounds so, I mean, to me even, yeah, less likely than the interdimensional idea. I mean, mm-hmm. I know there's guys like like the Chris Cogswells out there. They're super, super like, you know, hard evidence and science-based and stuff like that. And that's super important. But at the same time, we have all these cases where clearly, clearly like interdimensionality is a thing. Like, you know, the, there's Skinwalker Ranch is just one example. There's all kinds of stuff that happens on Baikal. There's stuff that happens in all kinds of different hotspots. And I feel like charlie is an example of something that clearly came from some somewhere else not another planet it's uh Mm. exhibits behavior that's like yeah like we've talked about this whole time that's not typical ufo Mm -hmm. and that just isn't the typical ufo experience in general no so i'm definitely leaning interdimensional the the question is why and of course we'll never get that answer it's the same thing with like mothman same thing with, you know, right, with injured cold and those types of things. It's like, why? Why why come here? And I think it's interesting what you said too, Rob. Like, it's not entirely physical. The idea that crossing over maybe from one dimension to another, you're only really existing in part. It isn't the full, solid, you know, mm, you know what I mean? Like, it yeah. isn't the entire Charlie as it exists in whatever dimension it came from. It's existing in a more metaphysical form that we can see here Mm. and that maybe accounts for the crazy different color changing and the you know just 
That's the bizarre nature of the sightings. What if all we're seeing is really just the the metaphysical sort of energy aura of the being? What if we are actually simultaneously existing in another dimension and we appear as these sort of amorphous sort of blobs like of, sometimes like, imagine like that. by no, accident i'm sorry i'm just totally going on a tangent where it's like imagine <laughs> if we are literally existing in another plane of existence and say for example we change our energy we change how we're feeling say i go from happy to sad and i change maybe my my field or whatever and maybe right. it goes from a bright yellow to like a, a dismal blue or something <laughs> okay. and then i get angry and it turns a bright red and then you know you end up shooting off as you're like you know what Screw all this. I'm out of here, man. I don't know. And that would be Charlie. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe we are Charlie. There you go. That's interesting. You know, that's that's kind of interesting because they... Uh, one new hypothesis that has emerged, um, you know, over the last decade is the idea of the co-creation hypothesis that we are partially co-creating whatever, uh, you know, manifests with whatever intelligence that we're interacting with. Yeah. So that's that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I think another reason why I lean more interdimensional is that this phenomenon whatever it is, it has the ability to shape our perception of it. Right. For whatever reason, it just it can shape itself to whatever it wants to. And in this case like I feel like at times it's like Charlie's like, I've got to really slow down for these people to understand. Otherwise they're just not going to get it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting way to look at it, but Hmm. the, the ET stuff, the, the, it just doesn't tick any of the boxes. Mm -hmm. So I think we're, we're left with, it was something intelligent, but we have no freaking clue what it is. <laughs> yeah. But we're pretty sure that it's not from our plane, and we're pretty sure it didn't like mm. slowly make its way from some other yeah. planet. Yeah, Agreed. and you know what's also interesting that is sort of an absence from this case is if it is some sort of, yeah, exactly what you're describing, we don't get any instances like we do in, say, like uh, the Mothman case where there is communication, right. where there is like telepathic or some sort of mental mental sort of breakthrough exactly yeah yeah and and you get those those pathways you don't you don't ever come across that with charlie no it's just it was less less uh like less intent i guess like it's just kind of there and playful Hmm. you know Hmm. it's not trying to communicate in the same way other than just to say like you like you just said rob like hey like i gotta slow down so that these guys can see me but it's not really like a conversation or is that just is that privileging us too much in a sense like you know like are, are we valuing valuing ourselves as too important in this whole like formulation and maybe charlie really isn't interested in us at all but but you do get these instances where he does seem interested where he is kind of yeah. trailing cars and yeah. where he is kind of curious teasing people yeah. and all that so i yeah it's a fun story. I go back and forth. I don't know. <laughs> I could think about this endlessly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it, it feeds into the idea that maybe what we're seeing is like the most primitive form of communication by a highly intelligent being that is possible. Right. Yeah. Hmm. That's when it's getting your attention for a reason. 
There's no reason why it wouldn't be. And, you know, people talk about, like, well, if... And and going back to the E.T. hypothesis, if they're coming from however, you know, many light years away that they are, they must be so advanced that they they would be able to cloak themselves and 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 all this stuff and yet with ufos it's not about that it's about presenting themselves in yeah. whatever way possible yeah. so it's baffling it, it it really is what the hell are we looking at why the hell do they keep showing up and uh why the heck do they just keep showing up i don't know yeah. it's it's baffling. Go, go, people, this shit will drive you crazy. Just go start a podcast. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah. So, before we get out of here, um, thank you both so much for coming on thank you. and talking UFOs with me. It's It's been such a yeah, blast. Uh, just, like, going off the rails. Oh, so. yeah. It's such a privilege. Oh, thank we're, you we're so honored much. to be on, on this with you, on your, on your show. Yeah, it's awesome. So could you guys just uh, run through the, the socials, the usual blurbs about where people can find you and your podcast and all that other good yeah, stuff? Yeah, cool. So you can find us always on our website at intotheportal.com. And uh, that's where Amber has her awesome blog that we get up almost every week. And then the <laughs> links to our, our show is obviously on there as well. And then, uh, yeah, you can find us on all we're on all podcast uh, platforms now, including Spotify. That was the last one on the list, and we're on there now. Um, and then, yeah, we're on Twitter. Come chat with us on there. It's at Into the Portal One, and on Facebook at Into the Portal Podcast. And you can follow us on Instagram as well at Into the Portal Podcast. So come, come, uh, yeah, follow us and see what's up. And you, can, yeah, reach out and interact. We'd love to have more people along for the ride. Absolutely. Um... Again, thank you both so much for coming on the pod. Thanks, man. Uh, we would love to do it again soon. We, Yeah, this was a blast. Let's do it, yeah. Absolutely. We'll have you on our show. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, cheers, Rob. <laughs>